So when it comes to things like stocks and bonds and financial investing in general, uh, I am far from being an expert. There is a little I know, and there are mounds of things that I do not know. Um, However, I do enjoy on occasion reading articles that have to do with investing. And last week I came across one that was very interesting. It tracked the stock gains over the last 100 years going back to 1920. And there were a couple of things that this particular article mentioned. One was that in every single decade, uh, the stock market in general has had a positive gain except for two decades. One was the 1930s when this country was in the middle of the Great Depression and in the 2000s when this country was in the middle of the Great Recession. And even in those two decades, the loss over the course of that decade was only minimal and it was immediately made up in the first year of the next decade. The other thing this article mentioned was that if you in 1920 invested just $100 in a wide array of stocks, like something like the S&P 500, if you invested $100, that today that $100 investment would be worth $2.6 million. That's great, except who wants to wait 100 years for their $2.6 million? We look at that and we say, well, that's nice, that's wonderful, but I'm not waiting a century for that kind of money. I want what's going to return a huge uh, investment for me in a year, in a month, in a week, in a couple of days. Don't talk to me about long term. Tell me what the next hot investment is. Talk to me about Bitcoin. You know, how can I make a lot of money with that? What's the next hot commodity? What's the startup company that's going to make me a lot of money and it's going to make it quickly? We don't like long term. We don't like to have to wait. We are a culture that expects things right away. We have lost the art of waiting. And maybe that's not a huge deal over most aspects of life, But when it comes to our spiritual lives, it can be incredibly dangerous. When we find ourselves talking talking to God while we're pointing at our watch and we're stomping our foot saying, you haven't come through. God, what are you waiting on? I'm ready for you to deliver. Now here's why I bring all of this up. Today we are returning to our series called Sins and Stones. We've been out of this series for a little while, so let me take just a moment and bring you back up to speed. In this series, we are looking at the life of David. David was the second king over Israel. He lived about a thousand years before Christ, about 3,000 years ago. The first king over Israel was a man named Saul. Saul started off well in his reign, but then Saul's heart drifted away from God to the point that God rejected Saul and his entire family line as the reigning monarchy over Israel. So then God sent a man named Samuel, this prophet, to the house of David to anoint him to become the next king over Israel. There was this promise that was made. It was, hey, you are going to become king. And then that was it. Samuel left and there was no timetable given. 
There was not even a vague idea given of when this would become reality. David had this promise. He knew the what, but he did not know the when. He did not know when it would happen. And for 15 years, David waited. For 15 years, there was a promise, but there was not the reality. Finally, 15 years later, in the passage that we're going to read today, we'll see that David actually realizes this promise that had been made that had been made a decade and a half earlier. Now, just to set this up, Saul, the first king of Israel, he finally dies. We saw that several weeks ago when we looked at that passage at the end of 1 Samuel. And then, as often happened in the ancient world and even happens in some countries today, the death of, of a ruler led to this power struggle. There was a son of Saul who was trying to take power. There was an advisor of Saul who was trying to take power. After a short period of time, both of these men are killed, and it becomes apparent that David was to become the next king over Israel. So that's where our passage picks up. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, 2 Samuel is right after 1 Samuel in your Old Testament. So 1 Samuel chapter, I mean 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we will start in verse 1. Here's what we read. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So the people come to David, the people of Israel, and they say, it's time for you to become king. We've had two who have tried to take the throne, the son of Saul, this advisor of Saul. They're both dead. It's very clear, David, that you are to become the king. And the text tells us, that it was representatives from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who come to David. So when you think about the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and then there's, there were the 12 sons of Jacob. These 12 sons then had sons and daughters, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. So representatives from each tribe come to David and they say, it is time for you to actually take the throne and to serve as our king. And they gave him three reasons why. One, you are our own flesh and blood. You, you are us. Why should we have some outside ruler who is not part of our flesh and blood, some powerful ruler from another land, come in and, and become king? You, you are us. You are part of our flesh and blood. Secondly, you led Israel during military campaigns under Saul. David had served as a general under Saul, and he had been very successful. Every time he led men into battle, they won. And so they come to David and say, look, you were a great military leader. We believe that will transfer into political leadership, that you will make a great king. And the third reason is, and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people. The Lord said to you, you will become their ruler. And so the third reason is really the only one we need. The other two are just icing on the cake, David. God said that you were to become our king. 
God said that you were to become our ruler. So David, we are ready for you to actually take the throne and be king. Verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king as, as uh, king over Israel. So David's ascension to the throne actually happened in two different stages. The first was he ruled from a city called Hebron over the tribe of Judah. Hebron was located about 20 miles to the, uh, to the south of Jerusalem. And Judah was one tribe of Israel, one of the 12, and that was the tribe that David was from. And so David initially ruled over his own tribe, and then the other tribes came and said, we are ready for you to become king over all of Israel. And so they had a second anointing of David. The first anointed happened 15 years earlier, when David was anointed at 15 years old by Samuel. The second anointing happens here when they took what, that, what was promised to David and they made it official. Then verse 4. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. Verse 5. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So again, David's ascension to the throne was not exactly a straight line. He started off reigning over Judah in Hebron, reigned there for seven years and six months, seven and a half years, and in Jerusalem he reigned over all of Israel for 33 years. Now I know some of you are math majors, and the math here is bothering you. You're upset. 33 plus seven and a half doesn't equal 40. Should have been 40 and a half there. It's really bugging you right now, right? Your OCD has kicked in. Why didn't they get the math right? Don't worry about it. The author was just rounding up. 40 years is a long time, a rounding down. And so it's, it, it was not something where necessarily in, in that tradition they would record it exactly. They were rounding off. So if you're an accountant, this is materially correct. In accountant speech, that means we can make a mistake and still call it right. And I'm paying you for that. All right, verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Okay, so here is where the story gets really interesting. These tribes come to David at Hebron and they say, we are ready for you to rule over all of Israel. They anoint David as king over Israel and David's first act is to attack the city of Jerusalem to capture that as the capital city over all of Israel. At this point... The Jebusites occupied Jerusalem. The Jebusites were the descendants of Jebus, who was one of the grandsons of Noah. They had occupied Jerusalem earlier in, in the history of Israel in that region. Then when it, uh, the Israelites took over that land, they occupied Jerusalem. Then at some point, the Jebusites 
had moved back in. And David here at this point wanted to capture Jerusalem and take it over for two reasons. One, this was the land that had been promised by God to the Israelites. And David knew that this promised land needed to, that Jerusalem as part of the promised land needed to be occupied by them. But secondly, Jerusalem was the ideal place to have a capital to reign from uh, in ruling over all of Israel. In the ancient world, there were three things that were necessary for a city to be able to survive. The first was height. A city needed to be up on top of a hill to be able to defend itself against any enemies it would attack. Especially in ancient warfare, it was tremendously hard to capture and take a city um, while attacking it going uphill. To defend a city against those who were coming up at you was much easier. The second thing that a city needed was walls. Uh, without walls, a city was, was going to be captured. And so any ancient city needed height and needed walls. And the third thing a city needed was a water source. Otherwise, an enemy could come and they could surround the city and just wait. Just wait till they died from thirst. And so a city had to have height, had to have walls, and it had to have a water source. Jerusalem had all three of those. It was the ideal city to reign from. Height, it sits on Mount Zion, about 2,000, 2,400 feet roughly, above sea level. And so it had the height advantage. In fact, when you read through your Bible, and you read in the Gospels, especially that someone uh, was going uh, to Jerusalem, you'll always read that they went up to Jerusalem. Even if you turn to the back of your Bible and you look at the map at the back of your Bible and you see that they were going, say, from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, you go back to the text and it says, and they went up to Jerusalem. Why is that? Because Jerusalem's the highest point. And they would travel up to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had height. The second thing is Jerusalem had walls. Now, over the course of their history, these walls were destroyed and rebuilt a few times, but they had height and they had walls and a water source, a water source that was critical. There is a tunnel going from inside the wall city of Jerusalem underground to a natural spring, the secret tunnel that was hidden over the years where they could access water and then get back into the city without people, without the enemy knowing where the spring was and knowing how they were accessing the water. About three years ago when Katie and I went to Israel, we actually had the chance to go through this tunnel that goes from the city of Jerusalem to this spring called the Gihon Spring. It was changed and kind of reformatted over the years. Uh, it is now known as Warren's Tunnel. It was named after Charles Warren, who really rediscovered this tunnel in the 1860s. Um, and over the years, the Israelites would use this tunnel to access this spring. In fact, here's a picture of us going through the tunnel. I will tell you, this was part of the tunnel that was more open. And I am somewhat claustrophobic. There were times this tunnel became very narrow, and I thought we would never get to the end. Um, it was about, I think, an 1,800-foot walk 
to get through this tunnel. When we got to the other side, I said, that's it. That's the first and last time I will ever go through that tunnel. If I ever lead a group to go back to Israel, you can go through the tunnel and I will meet you on the other side. (laughs) There's a way to go over that. Um, Over the years, they would use this as a way to be able to, to have water while they were under siege by some invading army. This is why the Jebusites living in Jerusalem said to David, you will not get in here. David, you will not be able with your army, even though you are stronger, to get in here. In fact, David, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. David, even if our army was made up of those who were blind and lame and nobody else, you would not be able to to defeat us. Why? We've got height, we've got walls, and we've got a water source. And essentially, this was ancient smack talk. Even the blind and the lame can defend us, David. You're not getting in here. Be careful when you do smack talk. Verse 7. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those blind and lame who are David's enemies. That is why they said, they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. Here's what David said. Yes, they are right. Jerusalem has height. Yes, they are right. Jerusalem has walls. Yes, they are right. Jerusalem has a water source. Under normal circumstances, they would be correct that we would not be able to defeat them, that we would not be able to capture the city of Jerusalem. However, we've occupied the city before. We happen to know about the water shaft. We know where it's located. And the author does not give us the details of how they did it, but they accessed this water shaft, and through that water shaft, through what we now call Warren's Tunnel, they were able to get inside the city, and they defeated the Jebusites and took over Jerusalem. Next verse. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. So here's here's what we know from the text. When Scholars estimate that when the Jebusites occupied uh, Mount Zion, when they occupied Jerusalem, that it only covered about 12 acres. David knew that this would become the capital of Israel. This was their Washington, D.C. And to have a government, a central government reigning from this area, they needed to level out this land, the, the top of Mount Zion. And so they literally brought dirt in and more dirt and more dirt and expanded the palace and expanded the city. So that by the time of Jesus, this 12-acre piece of property on top of Mount Zion, uh, by the time of Jesus was about 400 acres. They just continued to expand the city of Jerusalem as uh, as the capital city of Israel. And then verse 10, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. Notice how this is in direct contrast with what we read about Saul and his particular reign. You would read about something that Saul had had done, and then it would say, and God was no longer with him. 
And God was no longer with him. And God was no longer with him. And you get here to David, and it says, And he had success. Why? Because the Lord Almighty was with him. Verse 11. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. What a nice guy. Hiram, king of Tyre, builds a palace for David as an inauguration present. You're now the king over Israel. I will build a palace for you. Why would he do that? So Tyre was and is located to the northwest of Israel, right on the Mediterranean. Hiram uh, became king over Tyre when he was 19 years old. A very young king, but a very shrewd king. And he heard about David, and so he sent cedar logs and a lot of men into Israel to say, we will construct a palace for you. This was not out of the goodness of his heart. This was not, hey, congratulations, I'm just doing this without any expectation in return. Hiram understood that Israel, throughout the course of its history, sat on what we would call Route 66. In between Egypt and the powers to the west and all the different powers to the east, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes. Israel sat in such a strategic location. And Hiram understood that a good trading relationship with Israel meant a good trading relationship with the world. It is the reason that God gave Israel that particular piece of land as the promised land. The reason that God said to Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to go to this land that I'm going to show you. And there I want you to take up residence in this land is because over the centuries, this piece of property was Route 66. And God's calling on Israel was not just to have this beautiful land. God's calling on Israel was to be a light to the world. And the world traveled through Israel any time they traded. And at various points in their history, that's exactly what they did. You read through the Old Testament and you will read about kings uh, and queens from Egypt hearing about God and becoming followers of, of the Israelite God and rulers from the east hearing about God and becoming followers of the Israelite God. And so Hiram understood, if I can, can have a good trading relationship with Israel, it will make our nation more powerful. And so David here, when this happens, David knew that Israel was finally on the map. That Israel was no longer just a collection of tribes battling the Philistines or other, other you know, tribes of, of different nations that were coming after them. They knew, David knew that at this point, they were established as a nation with a reputation for uh, a good reputation with the other nations. Okay, verse 13, and we'll finish here. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. 
So several weeks ago, if you were here, I said, we will, in a few weeks, deal with the issue that David, God's chosen, has multiple wives and concubines. And we read this and we go, wait a second, hold on, time out. This was a man after God's own heart, and yeah, he did a lot of great things, but multiple wives? Why would God allow polygamy? Why, why did God allow David to have multiple wives? Why was polygamy acceptable? That is a great question. I'm glad you asked. In fact, I put your question right here. Why did God allow polygamy? Because you read through the Old Testament, of course, David was not the only one. And you see these, these forefathers of our faith with multiple wives. And we say, wait a second. Is this right? Why, why did God allow this? Let me give you three reasons that God allowed polygamy. And I use the word allowed. It was not God's plan from the beginning. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But God allowed polygamy in the ancient world for three reasons. One was a need for children. Uh, nations needed children. They were an, uh, an agrarian society. They needed kids to work the farms. They needed children to, uh, for their armies uh, to, to be able to go into battle they needed to reproduce as quickly as possible. And a king specifically needed to have multiple children to be able to have an heir who would take over the kingdom after he died. And we forget, because we live in a culture where this doesn't happen all the time, but mortality, um, deaths happened all the time in the ancient world. Somebody could wake up in the morning, they were fine, they get a sickness in the afternoon, no antibiotics, they're dead before nightfall. I mean, that, that just happened a lot. And a king would need to have numerous sons to be able to have a son who would take over after he died. Now, this also created problems because he would have numerous sons, and if they all lived and they all made it to adulthood, when dad died, there would be a power struggle. There would be a fight for who got to take over now for dad. So it created all kinds of problems, but they needed all of these children. That was one of the reasons for polygamy. Secondly, was because of the lack of men. So warfare was, was just a part of life in the ancient world. There would be very few years where there was peace. A, a young man would go into the army, and he would expect that he was going into battle. He would not serve four years, never see a battle, and just come home. He was going to go to war at some point. And so men would go into battle. Young men would go into battle. They would die. And there was a lack of men in the country. There were far more women than men, which leads to the third reason. And you're going to think this is really odd, which leads to the third reason that God allowed polygamy. And that was the protection of women. And that doesn't make sense. Why would God allow polygamy for the protection of women? Because in the ancient world, a woman who did not have a man that she could depend on was often a victim of numerous kinds of abuse. If she did not have some kind of protection coming from a man, she was open to abuse. The idea that, that a woman could leave her father's household Go and get a job, work in the city, be completely independent, 
That is a modern idea. That is not something that the ancient world would have looked at and said that is, that is even plausible, that it even makes sense. In fact, just as an illustration, I want to show you just, just how modern of an idea that this is. Um, in the 1970s, there was a sitcom that aired called The Mary Tyler Moore Show. It centered around this single girl in her 20s or 30s, working uh, at a radio station in Minneapolis, and all of the things that she would experience, all the different you know, things that typically happen in a sitcom, uh, she would you know, go to work and all, you know, experience all of these different things. Um, all of the problems would be wrapped up in 30 minutes. All the things you see in a sitcom. If that show aired today, we would say, hey, no big deal, right? In the 1970s, it was incredibly unusual. So much so that when you look up the Mary Tyler Moore show on Wikipedia, here's what you'll read. Here's a quote. A central female character who was neither married nor dependent on a man was a rarity on American television in the 1970s leading to numerous publications citing the Mary Tyler Moore show as a groundbreaking series in the era of second wave feminism. And this is only half a century ago. And this was how groundbreaking this particular TV show was. Now, the reason I give you this quote is for a couple of reasons. One, I want you to understand that Wikipedia is a completely reliable source, and if you're a High school student or college student, I highly recommend in all your research papers, quoting Wikipedia, you will get A's every single time. But the second reason is for you to understand just, just how our modern concept of how a woman can just go and independently work and be on her own, just how modern that is. And in the ancient world, this was just not conceived of. And so for a man to have multiple wives, it was actually seen as a way to protect these women from abuse of being out there on their own. Now, this was true in the ancient world, but there were all kinds of problems with it. It's why from the beginning God said, here is what is ideal, here is what is best. One man and one woman. And there were so many problems with it, in fact, that a thousand years after David, by the time of Jesus, it was completely forbidden. When Jesus came along, it was one man and one woman, and polygamy had, had, you know, was illegal at that point because there were so many issues with it. However, when you read the Old Testament and you see these stories of men with multiple wives, this helps you give some context as to why this was an ancient practice. Okay, beyond understanding that, let's talk about the passage and the fact that David had to wait so long um, before he was able to realize this promise of God. What do we do when we're in a situation like David? Think about where you were 15 years ago in your life. Think about all that has changed in your life in the last 15 years. Think about all of those circumstances, all the different details that have changed in your life. And think about having to wait that long for a promise of God it can be extremely frustrating, overwhelming, discouraging. What do we do when we're waiting on a promise of God? This is on your message map. 
When you're waiting on God, the first thing is to trust in God's process. This is exactly what we see happening in this story about David. David was anointed king at 15, but David was not ready to be king at 15. God had a lot of training left for David. David would serve in the court of Saul before he actually ascended to the, to the throne as king. And so because of that, he was able to learn how to be a king, what it meant to be a king, how to act in many ways uh, in a royal manner. David served as a general in Saul's army. And so David was able to learn about uh, what it meant to lead men while he served as a general. David was on the run from Saul, and during that time, God did all kinds of things developing the character of David before David actually ascended the throne. So often, when we're waiting on God, it's not that God doesn't want to give us that promise. It's that God is doing things in us before that promise can become reality. The two areas where I see this the most, uh, number one, is when someone is waiting on a spouse. Dating, trying to find the right person, waiting for that husband or wife to come along. And they're saying, God, how come it hasn't happened yet? God, how come you haven't delivered yet? And if we could peel back the divide between heaven and earth, we would see that God is saying, hey, it's not time yet. I'm still doing some things in you before it's time for that to become reality. The second thing is when we're waiting on a job. We've prayed and we've prayed. Maybe it's to get a job. Maybe it's to get a better job. Maybe it's to get a promotion where we are. And we say, God, how come you haven't come through yet? And God says, it's not that I'm not delivering. It's not that I don't want you to have it. It's that I'm still doing things in you to prepare you for the task that I have for you. When we're waiting on God, the first thing is to trust in God's process. The second thing is to trust in God's timing. Sometimes it's not just that God is working on our character. It's that God is working in the circumstances around us. And it's not time yet because the situation is not right. And God, if we could, again, peel back the divide between heaven and earth, we would see what God sees. And God would look at us and say, if you could only understand all of the circumstances, you would understand why the timing is not right for that promise to come through. Last year, we as a family went to a Braves game on a Friday night. And it was one of these games where we stayed to the bitter end of the game and we actually stayed for the fireworks at the end of the game. And so by the time we actually got out of the stadium, it was late. I mean, really late. The kids were tired. We were tired. They wanted to get into the car so they could go to sleep. I wanted to get to the car so I could get home and go to sleep. Everybody was tired. And so we, with the mob of people leaving the stadium, walked out. I was holding one of the kids' hands as we're leaving. We're trying to keep up with all of our kids. And you know, there's just this mass of humanity that is walking and you're having to walk across streets where there are cars that are going. They're trying to get home. They're tired. They're ready to get to bed as well. And I can remember holding the hand of one of my children. And we're going along and they can't see over all of the adults that are around them. All they want to do is get to the car. So what do you think they would do? We'd get to a street. They would start to bolt across. I would grab their hand and pull them back. It's not time yet. 
If you step out onto that street, there's danger. You could get hit. You could get hurt. I think so often when God doesn't come through on a promise, he's holding our hand, holding us back, saying, not yet. Not yet. There's danger out there. I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to come through. You will get to cross the street. But not yet. I'm protecting you from that. Finally, the last thing. Trusting God's promise process, trust in God's timing, and the third thing is trust in God himself. So often what we want is the promise of God. We want God to deliver. We want God to give us this thing that we have prayed about for so long, and God says, yes, that's fine, and I want to give it to you, but more than that, what I want to give to you is me. I want you to have this incredible relationship with me And through the journey, whatever you get or you do not get, it is the relationship with me that is most important. Years ago when Katie and I were were dating and just about a year before we got married, I remember we were in that stage where we were just madly in love and would stay up late at night talking and going through the stage where just, you know, every moment that we could be together, we wanted to be together. And that December, I got us tickets to go to the candlelight tour of the Biltmore House in Asheville. We were living in Charlotte at the time, so it was only about a two-hour drive up to, up to Asheville to go through the Biltmore House at night and see all the Christmas decorations and all the candlelight that you know, would light up the house. We drove up there, and we drove into the uh, property of the Biltmore House. And if you've ever been there, you know there are a lot of roads. It's a massive piece of property, and it was dark, and at some point I took a wrong turn, and we were all headed somewhere in the wrong direction. Uh, it was a beautiful night. The snow was coming down, falling on these fields. The moonlight was sort of lighting it all up. And at some point I remember that we were lost, and I really didn't care if we made it to the tour or not. Why? Because I was with Katie, and that was all that mattered. Now, eventually we made it to the tour, and we actually made it on time to the tour. But had we not, I think I would have been fine. We could have just hung out. We could have just parked there and looked at the snow and talked and talked and and talked because it was not the destination that I was concerned with. It's who I was with. That's what God wants for our lives. There are certain things we're waiting on, certain promises that we're waiting on, we want God to come through. We want him to, de- to deliver. But the, at the end of the day, the greatest gift that any of us can have is God himself. And that is the promise that God has given to all who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, no matter what life throws at you, you have God. You have the presence of God in your life all the time. God will never leave you nor forsake you. And no matter what you face, no matter what you go through in life, you have God. And there's nothing better than that.